many of you know, I spent my years as an undergraduate in Nashville, Tennessee. While I was there, I took every occasion to explore the region. I went to New Orleans for Mardi Gras. I spent a birthday on Beale Street in Memphis. I went camping in the Smoky Mountains near Gatlinburg. I even explored the lesser-known sites like Rock City in Chattanooga. Has everybody ever seen that? Have you ever seen the signs, Sea Rock City? It's kind of a regional thing, but it's great. Uh, I went to the Sun Sphere in Knoxville. And by my senior year, I started seeking out the regional novelties, which brought me one winter afternoon to Paris, Texas. Oh, no, sorry, Paris, Tennessee. Paris, Tennessee. Just as California is peppered with towns named after Catholic saints, the southeastern U.S. is flavored by names from Greco-Roman history. There's Smyrna in Georgia and Tennessee and Florida. There are Athens in Georgia and Texas. And, of course, there is Paris in Texas, Tennessee, Virginia, Arkansas, Kentucky, and Mississippi. <laughs> the songwriter John Prine has a, has a great song which, in which he kind of plays with the, these terms. Um, it, it talks about uh, a young romance that, takes, that happened in Rome and in Athens and Paris. And then it has the punchline, bless you, has the punchline, Rome, Georgia, Athens, Texas, and Paris, Tennessee. It's called We're Not the Jet Set. If you, don't, if you get a chance, check it out. It's amazing. To be fair, it's not just the South that goes for Paris. There are Parises in Illinois, Idaho, Indiana, Iowa, Maine, Missouri, New Hampshire, New York, Oregon, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. To say nothing of the Paris in Las Vegas. <laughs> but today, I'm talking about Paris, Tennessee. Back in my senior year, a friend and I were exploring these regional sites online. And mind you, this was the days, the early days of Hotmail. I had just, I think like maybe months before I had I opened my first Hotmail account. Just to put that into perspective, the internet had some knowledge, but it was limited. <laughs> what we read online told us that Paris, Tennessee had a scale model of the Eiffel Tower. We saw some pictures and thought, great, let's go check that out. Let's see what we can find. So we hopped in the car. It was one of those cold, clear days, not unlike the days we had this last week, right? Nice and cold. You kind of want to stay in the car. This is a day, these are the days before smartphones, obviously. Um, so we, we were not following any kind of Google Maps. We were using one of those newfangled paper maps <laughs> that you can never fold, quite right. <clears throat> and Paris was over tw two hours away, uh, which is a lot for like an afternoon day trip to explore some random little scale model of the Eiffel Tower. But we, we headed off, and we're following our little regional map. And uh, when we got near in the area, we didn't really know where, how, we didn't have directions to the actual thing, so we stopped at the local Waffle House and asked... You know, this is a source of knowledge in the region. 
and uh, we got some directions, and, and we drove into the, the actual town, looking on the horizon, just scanning for, for something that was going to come out of the trees, you know, this, this beautiful Eiffel Tower, scale model, right? It's going to be amazing. Um, and we drove all the way through town, got, went back out into the country, and we're like, I guess, I guess we missed it, and turned back around, went, and then we saw this park entrance, this small little entrance for a park, and we're like, okay, maybe let's go check out there. And we turn in, and shortly there on the side of the road was the Eiffel Tower. The least impressive recre- recreation of the Eiffel Tower known to man or chicken. <laughs> this sucker was plywood. It, it, it looked like it was made from scraps from an Ikea factory. <laughs> this is absolutely ridiculous. The shape was, was the Eiffel Tower, you know? Yeah, yeah. But no, it was not really. It, was supposed, it says it was 65 feet tall, but I'd be amazed if it was 30 feet tall. Um, and they have, I will say, they have since improved it. It is now actually 75 feet tall, and uh, it is made of metal. But back in the day, there we were with the plywood. As we pulled in on that cold day after driving hours to nowhere, this pile of plywood was the least impressive thing I've ever seen. (laughs) It was laughably small. That feeling that I had in Paris, Tennessee is the exact opposite feeling that the disciples have in the passage today. Instead of being laughably small, they witness something that is scary big. Scary big. An abundance that is intimidating, overwhelming. It is so much more than they ever expected. Their nets are tearing. Their boats are sinking. The abundance is too much. It is too much. First Peter, still called Simon. He says, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Peter isn't being pious here. He's not the churchy, self-righteous Type. This is the gut reaction of a fisherman when he is on the job. A fisherman who has been shown a fisherman's view of heaven. More fish than you can possibly catch. Fisherman's view of heaven. Mind you, these are the days before overfishing. There was no threat or no sense of that at this time. It was not a problem. In response to this abundance, Peter pulls a Wayne and Garth. We're not worthy. Right? If you don't know what I'm talking about, don't worry about it. (laughs) If you do, I think you get it. Peter is face-to-face with an overwhelming beauty, and he does not want to muddle it. 
This is more about respect than it is about his wretchedness. I, uh, I was treated um, shortly after, so I have a newborn son, and in the week after he was born, we had just gotten back from the hospital, and uh, I, was, I was in my house doing chores, trying to keep the baby alive, and you know, doing all the things that you do at that time, my hair probably going like this, and wearing you know, whatever I could possibly get on my body for the times between I was changing diapers. And at that time, <laughs> my friend and neighbor showed up, and uh, she said, come on out to the car. I've got someone I want you to meet. And it was the person, I, I go outside, and I'm, you know, I look horrible. I'm probably hadn't showered that day. And, and the person that is outside my house is this woman, Joanna Macy, who is one of my total heroes in, in, the, in, the, total, in, the, in the world. She was a real good translator. She's like just a total amazing person, absolutely incredible person. And I am showing up, you know, looking pretty ragged. <laughs> and it, it, I felt guilty, but I was so excited to see her. It kind of didn't, didn't throw it off too much. But it, I felt guilty not because I felt like I should have gotten dressed up to come out to the car, but I felt guilty because this is someone I really respect, and I want to show my respect by looking like a decent human being. Right? That's, that's, kind, that's just like the tip of this this sense. It's not just like social obligation. It, it's truly some sense of respect for someone, you know, that is that is greater or somehow more. It reminds me, there's a spectrum of this respect that goes from just just kind of social niceties to a reverence for something. A true reverence for something. We, a few of us have been talking this morning about uh, our surfing and spirituality program and uh, how we get out. And, and I'm, as I'm thinking about this kind of respect, I'm remembering how in, on, when you go out surfing on big days... You know, on smaller days, you, you get their crowds and everybody's fighting for waves and it's, it's, it can be really, really messy. But on big days, you don't have that problem. You don't have that problem because these waves come in and they are intimidating. They are too much. People are scared. That's part of it. But people are also awestruck to see the water moving in ways that it does not normally move. Nobody wants to go and take off on these waves, in part because they might get smashed, but in part because they don't even know what it is. It's confusing to see something like that. It inspires a respect for something much greater than oneself. It is what we call the numinous. German theologian Rudolf Otto defines the numinous as a non-rational, extrasensory experience or feeling whose primary and immediate object is outside the self. Something beyond us, beyond human, a strong feeling of divine presence. Some of you might remember the, the analogy that uh, C.S. Lewis presents in his book, The Problem of Pain. He, he, Lewis describes the numinous as being related to dread. And he starts off by saying, uh, by describing it this way, 
Imagine I told you that in our new bathroom over there, which doesn't have the bathroom label on it yet, but that is a fully functional bathroom. Woo! The second door over there. Feel free to use it. Get in there. But Im- imagine I told you that there was a tiger in the new bathroom. If I said that and you believed it, you would be scared. You would want, not want to go over there, right? You would wonder if we could keep it in there. You, it, it's a fearful thing, and you know it's, you can, you can, it has a locus, right? You can, you can direct that fear somewhere. Now, imagine that I said, in that bathroom, instead of a tiger, there's a ghost. It's a different feeling. It is a curious feeling. But it is more like the uncanny, a different kind of fear, a fear for this unknown. It is both intriguing and disturbing. And of course, C.S. Lewis guides us in the direction of imagining if it were a great spirit, not just a ghost. Respect, curiosity, and intrigue, all these things come together to form the numinous. That's what Peter expresses here. It's the same sentiment Isaiah relates in our Old Testament passage. Did you guys catch that? Here's what Isaiah says when he encounters that. Woe is me, I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Yet my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Experience of the divine is like paddling into a gigantic wave. It is exciting, but it is also terrifying. We meet that terror and excitement with reservation. Reservation. Uh, as I think about that reservation in the face of the divine presence, I'm thinking about Augustine. You, you, guys, you might remember this famous line he has when he has the realization that he is uh, of the fullness of grace, of what, what grace implies for his life. He says, God, grant me chastity and continency, but not yet. when we face the fullness of life eternity of grace we come to the precipice with reluctance because we know that it changes everything a vision of heaven a vision of the grandeur of God's love here symbolized by the abundant fish is overwhelming when we see it we think we are not ready We are not ready for Dr. King's beloved community. We are not ready for the kingdom of heaven. We are not ready unless we are, unless the time comes when we're rocking our baby at home, when we are at work fishing, when we are in our daily lives and God shows up. Some of my friends have that, those plaques in their, in their rooms that say, bidden or not bidden, God is present. Have you guys ever seen those? 
they're, I really like them. <laughs> and it's a nice sentiment, but it can be intimidating when God is present, when God's love is apparent, when God's love flows through us. It is intimidating to think that the work we might actually do when we are empowered by God. It is intimidating to think that it might be us who welcome the 2.5 million undocumented individuals in California on load. It might be us bringing atmospheric CO2 levels back to 350 parts per million and stopping the effects of climate change. It might be us welcoming and loving and forming a community for the 42% of LGBTQIA youth who plan to commit suicide this year. That Work seems impossible and scary, but with God, it is possible. And that is the good news. The work is always God's. What scares us does not scare God. What do we do when our loved ones are trapped by addiction? How do we change the divisive political climate? These things scare me, but they do not scare God. Jesus is not fazed by the fish or by the sinful fisherman. Jesus is drawn to that fisherman, to the prostitute, to the prophet with the sailor's tongue getting burned by the coals. Jesus says, I can work with that. Jesus calls on those whom the world rejects to work with him. Like Peter, like Isaiah, like Joanna Macy or Joan of Arc and all the people through whom God has flowed, we are called. We are called to fish for people. We are called to be present for others. We are called to reel in the fish that might Sink the boat. To be God's love in the world. Amen.